Mutability. Welcome to Nature's Lead. This is a podcast available at naturesleed.com that both examines and inspires a certain approach towards life that is based both on personal philosophies and on the writings of people such as Emerson and Thoreau. Please send any feedback to info at naturesleed.com or drop a comment onto the blog at naturesleed.com or even onto iTunes or wherever you get the feed from. And if you're new to the podcast, I encourage you to listen to any prior episodes to get a better feel for things. This is Series 1, Episode 18, Title, Open to Inspiration. Okay, good to be back here again. In this episode, I emphasize the need to be open to various sources of inspiration in our lives. As an example of this, I look at the famous movie Citizen Kane. So we'll get to that in a second, but first, today's random window. Yesterday, I had the traditional Thanksgiving dinner with family. Thanksgiving, for those of you outside of the U.S., is one of the big holidays here, and a big feast of food with friends and family is the centerpiece of the celebration. I bring this up because I wanted to say that family, whether they are people directly related or people distantly related or even just good, strong friends, whatever collection in our lives serves as family, to have people that truly care about your path in life, about your well-being, about who you are, to have people like that in your life, if even just one can elevate your soul to a heightened awareness of the beauty and value of human beings in our lives. I can only wish that the rest of the natural world, such as a young, agile tiger in the Himalayas, or an aging, shuffling elephant in the Serengeti, or a swaying giant sequoia in the Sierra Nevadas, or even the hummingbird that frequents my backyard, I can only wish that they, at some point in their lives, are splashed, and if lucky, drenched by the warmth of something or someone who cares. On to the main topic, open to inspiration. One thing society and humanity are great for is inspiration. People in this world are constantly generating thick layers of art and culture, and I've always tried in my life to be open to receiving inspiration from disparate sources. In Series 1 of this podcast, I've concentrated strictly on literature in the traditional sense. In this episode, though, I want to vary from that a bit. There are four categories of human art that I use as inspiration on a regular basis. Literature, music, paintings, and movies. Now this last item may seem odd to some, but I personally see movies as a wonderful source of inspiration and passion. Some of our great artistic minds in the 20th century were involved in making movies, so the medium is impossible to ignore when looking at the wide landscape of artistic creation. In my studies of English literature, I did at one point analyze film as literature, and I was amazed at the intricacies, the intellectual and literary depth embedded into many famous movies. Many of these movies I had seen before, and I had never realized the tapestry of symbolism and themes playing out before our eyes just beneath the surface of what we notice. Now I had always loved movies and drew inspiration from them. But finding out that many are given the qualities and attention that great literature receives was almost like an excuse for me to be drawn in that much more. Film schools scrutinize and dissect some of the quote-unquote great movies, and these aren't necessarily the most popular ones. 
Sometimes that goes hand in hand. But making a movie really well, one that has a great script foundation and a visionary director, does not guarantee great success. For this reason, fewer and fewer of these types of films, films that can be analyzed in depth as literature, are being made these days. Just like everything else, money often wins out in the end. Therefore, very often, many of the films that can be analyzed in this way are older. Before color, in the black and white days, many films were infused with this high level of quality. Today, you may only see a couple come out in a year's time. Much of this lack of quality, in my opinion, is affected by standards being lowered over time as a natural competitive byproduct in society. But I'll talk more about that in a future episode. Citizen Kane is probably the most off-sided premium example of this type of qualitative filmmaking. And this movie is perfect as an example of one of the main ideas I'm putting forth to you in this episode. Despite the fact that the depth of some of the movie's symbolism and the filming techniques early on is some of the best ever, and despite the fact that it has one of the most beautiful underlying character stories ever, it's hard for me to sit through all of this movie. However, I still draw great inspiration from certain parts of it, and that's what's important. For me, the individual who can be inspired by things picked out of humanity's grand collage of cultural output is going to always have sources of inspiration and is going to often see beauty in the mundane. Certainly, Citizen Kane is a great movie and not mundane, but if you take the average person today, someone just wanting some good entertainment, Citizen Kane isn't going to floor them. But let me tell you about a beautiful part of the story that relates directly to some of the ideas I have often talked about in this podcast. First, let me warn you that if you haven't seen this movie, I'm going to tell you the ending because it's a key piece in what I'm talking about. The movie is about this man who has just died and uttered the final word, Rosebud. A news agency decides to run with the story of trying to figure out what his final word meant, for he was this multimillionaire who had made a vast fortune and was, at some point, one of the most powerful people in the country. When he dies, which they depict in the opening scene of the movie, he is one of those snowy glass globes that have a scene within and they snow when you shake them. When he utters the word rosebud, the camera is showing his mouth close up and the entire screen is filled with snow, just like inside the glass globe. Then he dies, and the globe rolls out of his hand onto the floor. This is an extremely famous scene, and, ironically, it actually tells you the answer to the whole film, if you know how to read it. And I'll get back to that scene and explain in a moment. The whole film then becomes a biography of his life as the journalists try to figure out what one of the richest and most powerful people in America's history would be thinking about in his dying moments. Kane's history begins as a child in snowy mountains where he is removed from his family, an act supported by his mother who has become suddenly wealthy, and he is brought to the city. Then he later develops a media empire, etc., etc., and most of the movie is focused on his dynamic, impressive adult life. He is intensely driven and increasingly ruthless and lives out a long, involved life. By the end of his life, he has lost most of his early ideals and has become a recluse in his large estate, and he dies there as we had seen in the opening sequence. At the end of the movie, the journalist can't figure out what Cain meant with his final word and give up, and the last scene is at the giant furnace in Cain's large mansion, 
high on a hill, as workers are burning most of his vast collection of antiques and other odd old stuff. Then the worker grabs a children's sleigh, the very same sleigh that Cain, as a small boy, was holding up for protection against the man who was taking him from his family home. The worker tosses it into the fire, and there on the sleigh's burning wood is the melting name Rosebud. It was the name of his sleigh. This man lived his whole life, the incredible ups and downs, known by all, revered and feared, and of it all, upon his last breaths, what meant most to him deep down over everything else was the pure, innocent bliss of being home as a boy with his family, riding the hills of snow with his sleigh. If you've listened to most of the other episodes in this series, I don't need to tell you how much this hit home for me with the types of things I think about. If you haven't heard other episodes, let me just point out two angles. One is that Cain viewed his childhood, upon reflecting back over his whole life, as a time when he was most at peace with life, as a time when he was still pure and true to his nature. A second angle is provided by Cain himself, as he says, Quote, if I hadn't been very rich, I might have been a really great man, unquote. He realizes that he has been corrupted by money and the power it brings, and he detaches, which I think is brilliant, greatness from wealth and power, a separation our world today has so much consistent difficulty with achieving, let alone even approaching. The poignant contrast of the reporters is also fascinating, for they judge Cain by his surface and assume he is what he appears to be through and through. At the end, when they give up, one of the main people investigating his life is told by another that maybe the meaning of his final word would have explained everything. And the man replies, No, I don't think so. No, Mr. Cain was a man who got everything he wanted and then lost it. Maybe Rosebud was something he couldn't get, or something he lost. Anyway, it wouldn't have explained anything. I don't think any word can explain a man's life. No, I guess Rosebud is just a piece in a jigsaw puzzle. A missing piece. This line, and surface-level judgment of Cain, elevates our discovery at the end that one word can define who a person is deep down. That final moment when they show the sleigh and the audience finally sees a side of this mammoth character they had not expected, that is one of the great moments, not just in film, but in literature. Luckily, I didn't understand the brilliant symbolism when I first saw the film, so the ending came as a surprise. A professor explained it to me, as I will to you if you haven't already put two and two together. In that first scene, with the snow wrapped around Cain's face as he spoke that word, the film was telling us that Rosebud was something involving him being in snow, and his scene as a boy in the snow was the only one that fit with that. And the sleigh was even used physically as a barrier between him and this man who was going to take him away. This type of subtle symbolism being used to support a theme or storyline is very thick in good films, and most of it many of us don't notice. But it's through these beautiful, intelligent devices that certain films construct great purpose and meaning, just as a great work of literature does. But I'm really hitting on two things in this episode. 
First, I want to justify and encourage other sources of inspiration. And second, I want to show how other sources of literature or art outside of the Romantic era can have parallel themes to that time. In other words, many of the things I often talk about are like hidden, humming strings that surface here and there in our modern popular culture. And when consuming some of the vast output this world of humanity produces, it can be both fun and rewarding to discover hidden gold that can lift us up when we're not expecting it. The key to finding these things in my life is to not prejudge too often certain types of media and cultural output. These predetermined stereotypes that many lay across vast segments of our large media and entertainment machines effectively dismiss many opportunities to be uplifted and to see the world in a different way. So I encourage you, as I often encourage myself, to approach the world with your clean inner nature, to see each creation as a potential source for hidden brilliance to take advantage of the voluminous and seemingly overwhelming outpouring of all the world's cultures, in effect to lift up your spirit by simply remaining open to inspiration. That brings us to a close, so until next time, I wish you well and don't forget to follow Nature's Lead.